This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is a science podcast for March 25th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, contributing correspondent Kathleen O'Grady. We talk about the harassment that COVID-19 researchers are facing in a survey conducted by science that shows more media exposure is linked to higher levels of abuse. After that, producer Megan Cantwell brings us another highlight from the AAAS 2022 annual meeting. She talks with Dolores Knipp about space weather, or what happens when our well-behaved son behaves badly. This week, the science news team put a spotlight on scientists grappling with the current harsh social media landscape. As part of the package, contributing correspondent Kathleen O'Grady surveyed researchers and asked them about their experiences speaking out about scientific issues and the blowback they might have received. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Sarah. This is a, a big survey. Can you describe who you talked to or who you sent surveys to, you know, the size you started with, how many people responded? Give me some of the numbers here. We pulled email addresses from Web of Science, which is a database of citations gathering the corresponding authors' email addresses for any publication that used COVID as a keyword. We narrowed it down to about 30,000 people who had published more than once on COVID-19. And then we randomly selected around 10,000 of these and had 9,585 emails that got delivered. Out of those 9,500 people, we had 510 responses. People who told us about their professional lives, what it is that they work on, what it is that they've spoken about publicly, the kinds of media attention that they've had, their experiences with harassment, the effects of harassment and institutional support. Were you looking to see if there was harassment specifically associated with doing media appearances, talking about COVID online, that kind of thing? Yeah, we were interested in how strongly these things were related. I think it's fairly common sense that if somebody has a larger public profile, they'll probably have a greater experience of harassment. The question is how close the association is. We were also interested in what subjects people had spoken about publicly and how those were related to harassment. So obviously you've had very controversial topics like the origin of the virus, vaccination and so on, where there's huge polarization, a lot of misinformation. And we were interested in whether people who publicly took stances on these subjects received more harassment than people who spoke about less controversial subjects. 
Well, what kinds of trends did you see in the answers from these scientists? We found a range of different correlations. And it's important to point out that these correlations mean that the variables could be linked in a number of different ways. So it's very difficult to interpret exactly what these correlations mean. But what we found is that researchers who reported saying that we shouldn't be using ivermectin as a treatment for COVID-19 because we don't yet have strong enough evidence of its efficacy, they reported the highest levels of harassment. And researchers who spoke about handwashing and hygiene, for instance, had much lower levels of harassment than people who spoke about ivermectin. And those are topic specific, but what about whether or not a researcher went on the media or you know, had a social media presence related to COVID-19 issues? We did find a correlation there and it was quite a strong correlation. Again, fairly unsurprising. Again, important to point out that there were some researchers who had media exposure, who had low levels of harassment, researchers who had low levels of media exposure, but high levels of harassment. But overall, there was a relationship where the more media intensity a researcher had, the higher the level of harassment intensity they had too. What other themes did you notice? So there are two findings that I think are particularly important. One is that we found 38% of the researchers we surveyed had experienced at least one kind of harassment. The most common kinds of harassment that were reported were personal insults and attacks on professional capabilities or allegations of dishonesty or corruption. It was much rarer for people to report things like physical intimidation, death threats, or wishes or threats of harm directed at their family. While a number of people did have horrible experiences, the really terrible, terrifying experiences were mercifully rare in our sample. We also found that out of the 195 people who told us that they'd been harassed in at least one kind of way, the majority of them had never experienced harassment before. So it was new for them. They had obviously not had this kind of media platform before. And 53% of them told us they'd never experienced harassment. 18% told us that before the pandemic, they'd experienced much less harassment. So it's a new and scary experience for a lot of these people. What kind of reactions did they have to the harassment? Did it make people step back? I did read in your story that there's evidence that public health officials are leaving their jobs. There's been some great reporting on public health officials leaving their jobs, health workers leaving their jobs. For researchers, the main re- effect that people told us about is that it really, really increased their anxiety. Nearly half of our sample of people who said that they'd been harassed reported anxiety to at least some extent. There was a lot of fear for people's reputations and loss of productivity, so issues in the workplace. A number of people also told us that they turned down some or all opportunities for publicity, for giving policy advice. This harassment really did chase them out of the public sphere in a significant way. Is there a role for the platforms or even the organizations that these scientists work for to prepare them or protect them against this? There are a number of social media researchers looking at the problems that people like COVID-19 researchers are facing, and they're far from the only ones. They're saying that often the abuse that people experience goes against these platforms' terms of service, and there could be a lot more work being done to uphold the terms of service and protect people from harassment. But it is also worth thinking about how social media companies could change how they approach abuse and harassment, looking at communities that tend to generate a lot of this vitriol and cracking down across the board on communities rather than taking it as a whack-a-mole individual by individual approach. I also heard from researchers who told me that their institutions have been incredibly unsupportive and in some cases have punished them. 
for the harassment they've experienced or told them that kind of it's their fault or they deserve it or they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. And so a number of people in the survey told us that they really wished for a lot of support from the institutions that they didn't get. And a, a very small minority told us that they had received various kinds of support from their institutions. You mentioned researchers who study online harassment of researchers and others. What are they saying about this now, you know, in the era of coronavirus? I think one of the most important points I've heard is that it's important not to think about this as something unusual or unexpected or particularly shocking, that it's happening alongside a growth in incivility and toxicity that is hitting a huge range of people who have public roles in everything from school boards to public health. And we can't really understand it as a problem if we think of it as something that is, you know, shock horror hitting scientists who are normal people and normal people shouldn't be experiencing this kind of abuse. They shouldn't. But a huge number of people are in a huge range of different disciplines. And it's important not to think of this as sadly, particularly exceptional. So you're saying this is a larger trend. Do we know what's driving that? Some researchers are seeing this as part of a growing trend of authoritarianism, which is happening around the world. And it's something that's been seen throughout history that decrying science, scientists, the intelligentsia and the information that they provide is one way to maintain control of a narrative and prevent a message that's inconvenient in some way from getting out. And social media is somehow pushing the accelerator on that as well. Yes, the dynamics of social media play very neatly into the hands of people who are intentionally spreading disinformation and trying to discredit science. One of the things that really drives engagement on platforms like Twitter is outrage. If you see a tweet that you disagree with, you're likely to jump in the comments and start shouting at the person who tweeted the thing you disagree with or to quote tweet it and add your comment to the quote tweet. If you disagree with someone on Twitter, that's going to drive your engagement. It's going to drive other people's engagement with your tweets. And engagement is what the algorithms pay attention to. They tend to boost items that are being engaged with heavily. And some people know how to ride this wave and to really manipulate these algorithms to their own ends. Yeah. So this is, you know, you were describing in your story that it's not one person picking on another person. It's groups descending on someone who decides to speak out in public. Yeah, very much so. And what a number of people have told me is that they will be mentioned by some kind of prominent account or on some kind of news website or news segment. And then that drives a huge amount of abuse on social media and often email as well. Peter Hotez, who is a vaccine researcher at Baylor University, told me that he will often have segments on Fox News that criticize his stance on the pandemic. And then that unleashes torrents of anti-Semitic abuse on Twitter, especially. So it's these prominent accounts that are driving not necessarily coordinated swarms, but a whole, a huge number of people who are acting independently, delivering the same kind of abuse targeted at the same person. This is mainly focused on science communication on social media during COVID times. But talking about scientific controversies has drawn fear for a long time. We're talking about climate change or other environmental issues. This isn't totally new. No, not at all. I spoke to a number of climate scientists who've been experiencing these kinds of attacks for decades, obviously not on social media, but through email, in person, political attacks. And one horrible story, somebody found a dead rat outside his house. Oh, man. Somebody else told me about their child finding postcards full of death threats in their office. That was an animal researcher. So there are researchers in some fields who've really been having 
very traumatic experiences in this vein for a very, very long time. And what they told me is that they don't necessarily always have practical tips, but they are always willing to offer emotional support from somebody who's been there and to reach out to people who've been there for a long time. Very nice. Now, where could someone go if they were ready to speak up online, but scared of what would happen to them? You know, what are some resources? One very important thing that I've been told is that it's very important not to overestimate the threat because that can result in staying silent when it's actually very important to speak up. And there are some great resources that can help researchers to think about what threats they might be facing and to try and head them off where possible. So we've listed a number of these in the story and it's worth going to check those out. But probably my favorite one is step-by-step bot that will walk you through improving your basic security and self-defense. And that's on Crash Override, which is a resource center for people facing online abuse. And it'll help you think about how to make sure that your address has been scrubbed for many websites where it might be listed, lock down your social media, set up two-factor authentication, all of these other things that are pretty essential for decent cybersecurity. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Thanks so much for having me. Kathleen O'Grady is a contributing correspondent for the Science News team. You can find a link to this story and the rest of the package at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for producer Megan Cantwell and researcher Dolores Knipp. They talk about how someday we might predict space weather just like we do Earth weather. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash Nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. For the next few months, we'll be highlighting some panels from the AAAS annual meeting, which concluded during the second week of February. I'm Megan Cantwell, and today I'm here with Dolores Knipp, a research professor in the Smead Aerospace Engineering Sciences Department at the University of Colorado Boulder. We're going to talk about space weather and how it can impact technology here on Earth. Thanks for joining me, Dolores. My pleasure, Megan. I just wanted to start with the types of space weather that impact us here on Earth. I'm sure there's all kinds, but what do we mainly need to be worried about? There are three general kinds that we think about most often. The first one is solar flares, the solar photons from the sun. And of course, the sun is always putting out photons. But these are in particularly short wavelengths. And those disturbances can ionize Earth's upper atmosphere. And one of the things that happens as a result is radio propagation changes. It is used by emergency managers, for example, in some cases, aircraft use it. So those are technologies that can be disrupted. Another channel is something called a coronal mass ejection that frequently accompanies solar flares. And the more energetic the solar flare, the more likely it is to send out a bubble of this magnetized plasma. If they run into Earth's magnetic shield, they can actually deform the magnetic shield and create currents, which can flow into Earth's upper atmosphere. And it heats the atmosphere when that happens. So there can be issues with satellite drag. And if it's a large event, we get geomagnetically induced currents that can flow into 
long conducting wires like power grids. So that's the second kind of space weather disturbance. And then by either one of those or in combination, a flare and a coronal mass ejection, nature has a way of energizing particles to very high speeds. Those particles, because you get so little warning and they're so energetic, they can have some pretty profound impacts on the upper atmosphere. They can, again, also cause radio communication disruption. But those are the the kinds of disturbances that can get into our atmosphere, change its constituency a little bit. And certainly satellites or astronauts who are in the path of these particles, whatever material intercepts that ionizing radiation is probably not going to be in the best of shape afterwards. Are there cycles of this activity? Are there specific times of the year where space weather is more active or certain times in the decade even? Mm -hmm. There are. First of all, the sun has its own magnetic cycle. The full cycle is 22 years, but the activity cycle where sunspots start appearing at higher latitudes and move to lower latitudes on the sun, that is an 11-year cycle. The sunspots are the visible part of where magnetic fields are getting knotted up. If you can think of knotting up a rubber band, twisting it so that it gets really, really tight, and then maybe even stretching it a little bit, you can kind of imagine how energy might get put into a knotted magnetic field. Generally, the more sunspots there are, the more opportunity there is for flares and for solar magnetic eruptions. And so that is what people who are doing space mission planning pay a lot of attention to. When that has peaked and the sun is continuing its reconfiguration, sometimes there are large, we call them holes that appear in the corona because they appear dark on extreme ultraviolet and X-ray images. And what those regions are is the sun's magnetic field will have large openings And that allows the sun's atmosphere to flow out more freely and interact with Earth's magnetic shield. There are times a few years after solar max where both the sunspots have reached low latitudes, so they're lined up well with Earth, and the coronal holes are active, and you'll get interactions. Typically, just after solar cycle peak, and for about three years after that is when we tend to get our most spectacular aurora and the most interactions with our technology systems, which of course are not perhaps the most pleasant. How much warning do we usually have that a specific event is going to happen? Is it pretty easy to predict? We can see when sunspots are becoming very complex and hold a lot of magnetic energy. So we can say, "Mm, looks like the potential is there, but will it go off? And will it happen before the spot rotates to the edge of the sun? That's still tough. But machine learning is a field that has been used in artificial intelligence for quite a while. It's now being applied to forecasting solar flares and solar energetic particle events. And even how long it'll take a coronal mass ejection to arrive at Earth and what orientation the field might have because the field orientation and a magnetic ejection really matter in terms of how efficient the coupling will be for a storm. There's so many new technologies being used in lots of satellites in low orbit. I mean, the geomagnetic storm recently, which wiped out 40 of Starlink's satellites, when it came to this event, was it 
that the power of the storm was underestimated? What exactly were the reasons that led to this? I think the power of the storm was pretty well estimated, actually, and it was not a large storm. Part of the issue was that as SpaceX and Starlink have developed their system and operated it, they were basically operating in solar minimum conditions. And they really didn't have a lot of experience of knowing what might happen and just how big the perturbation might be with a modest storm. And they also had made plans to do their launches into kind of what we call very low Earth orbit, VLEO, which we don't have really good records on because most space technologies have not operated there. It's just too dense of an atmosphere. But they're using that as a staging area. They're using that as the place from which they're going to start their electric orbit raising. And they've decided, well, we'll start there. And if we've got a malfunctioning spacecraft in that thick atmosphere, we'll just command it down and it'll burn up in the atmosphere and not clutter up space. So there were aspects of those decisions that were really pretty good. But as the atmosphere becomes more heated and more expanded and we go into solar maximum, you're going to have to raise your base operating altitude in order to avoid the problems that, unfortunately, they experienced. To SpaceX's credit, the next launch, which was only about 10 days later, they put their next set of satellites up another 100 kilometers for the base operations. Things went very smoothly. Now, they had to launch three fewer satellites in their pod, but those are trade-offs. I would say everybody learned a lot of lessons there. And it certainly has the space weather community talking about, well, how are we going to describe this whole range of low Earth orbit environments that we have not operated in before? So Starlink is just one of many technologies that have been impacted by space weather. And one that you mentioned in your presentation was the Great Flare of May 23, 1967. Could you talk about the consequences of this event? I thought it was a really interesting but scary example of what can go wrong. It was a very scary example. It was one when we were in the midst of the Cold War and we were very reliant on using the ballistic missile early warning system at the northern latitudes to tell us that there might be an incursion of a missile or an aircraft. The ballistic missile early warning system used a radio frequency from which we thought the sun was really pretty quiet and well-behaved. It does not flare or burst in that frequency very often, but when it does, it's spectacular. And in that particular event, it was orders of magnitude more radio noise than we knew possible to be emitted by the sun, and it actually jammed our radars. And we were in a particularly tense time during the Cold War leading up to the Arab-Israeli War in 1967. The war gamers had always said, oh, well, if there's going to be an attack, the first thing that would be hit would be jamming the radars. And so there was incredible opportunity for misinterpreting a natural phenomenon as an enemy prep for attack. Fortunately, we had just put a few months earlier a solar forecasting center into Cheyenne Mountain Complex, which was the place where information from the ballistic missile early warning system was fed into. And I was so fortunate to be able to talk to the individual who issued the forecast for that day and mentioned 
to the briefer who was going up to talk to the general officers saying, well, the sun's pretty active today. And you know, it, it may really make a mess of things. And that information got conveyed to just enough of a point where someone said, well, before we do anything, we really ought to check and see what's going on. And it turned out, I think it saved us. Is this more at the forefront of people's minds who are developing new technologies now to account for these maximums? Yeah, I think so. Certainly it allowed us to go back and look at those radars just at the get-go and say, oh, well, we know that radars have primary beams looking forward, but they also accept energy into what's called their back lobes. And then they, they realized, ooh, energy came in the back door in this case. We now know that we have to have other frequencies that we can work at because in many cases, we were relying on radar waves that would bounce off of Earth's ionosphere. But if you want to talk to spacecraft, you have to have radio signals that can go through Earth's atmosphere. And you need to know how vulnerable are they to interference. So it's really generated a lot of scientific endeavor. And as civilians, we've benefited from that. We benefit from GPS, obviously. In your talk, you mentioned that this is still a relatively new field. And especially, as you're mentioning, in lower orbit, there's still a lot of questions we have, right, about how best to go about things. I'm curious what the biggest kind of questions you're pursuing right now are in your field. I think that the biggest kinds of questions that I am encouraging my colleagues to pursue have to do with how do we make use of sparse data or how do we merge different data sets together? Our discipline's a little behind, but catching up really fast in using those kinds of tools and using things like machine learning to see patterns that human eyes would just never be able to sort out, getting you know all the background noise to go away and have a, something reveal itself. But the other thing has to do with making basic measurements. Space is very big, and we have had in the past a few satellites that go out and sample various regions. And you hope that if you just keep a satellite up long enough, it will see a whole variety of things that can go wrong and help you or right and help you do a better job of forecasting. But sometimes you just, you can't have everything all the time everywhere. You can't have measurements like that. So you're going to have to be able to put the sparse measurements that you do have into some kind of good physical model and say, okay, we've got these measurements. We're going to nudge our forecast system forward a little bit like the terrestrial weather forecasters do and go from there. We're definitely looking into global circulation models, just like terrestrial weather forecasters are. How can models that we use on Earth for climate and weather be adapted to better predict space weather? When we think of atmosphere for the environment where we live and breathe, it's a neutral atmosphere for the most part. Very rarely do we have an ionization vent like a lightning bolt. And usually it doesn't turn out well for anybody who's at the wrong end of that lightning bolt. But space is ionized and space can be electrically charged. It's magnetically driven. So all of those new pieces of information have to come into those models. So you can use a lot of the same kinds of numerical techniques, but you have several more parameters that you have to fit in and say, okay, they have to follow all of these rules and all the rules, basically the equations have to fit in together. They have to nudge in together. It's more complicated for upper atmosphere as a result. Yeah, this is so interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. 
Well, thank you. And thanks for all the great questions. Dolores Knipp is a research professor in the Smead Aerospace Engineering Sciences Department at the University of Colorado Boulder. The work we discussed was presented at the AAAS annual meeting as part of a panel on space weather and its impacts on technology. You can find more information about this panel and the rest of the annual meeting at meetings.aaas.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scrivy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot join.